Life Audio. Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we discuss powerful truths to counter anxiety and fear, big and small. At Holy Love Ministries, we are passionate about helping God's children discover, embrace, and experience soul, deep, emotional, and spiritual freedom, and we want to inspire you to share that freedom with others. We would love to connect with you online. Just visit our show notes to learn about one of our upcoming events, how to book one of our speakers for your next event, or simply how to connect with us. everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. We all have a God-given and holy desire to be fully known and wholly loved. But while that's what we all want, what we all need, sadly, past wounds can cause us to withdraw and to hide. But this only increases our shame. The God who sees us, knows us, and deeply loves us is at this moment relentlessly pursuing us and inviting us on a journey of healing. And this is the driving message today's guest, psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson, clearly and persistently proclaims inviting us all to both experience God's relentless love and then to imitate Christ in relentlessly and persistently pursuing others. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. Jeffrey, so great to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's it's always humbling to be in the presence of people, and I'm, I'm saying this to our listeners, it's always humbling to be in the presence of people who are working really hard at, at life and people who are listening know that the life is not easy. In the words of Scott Peck and the first words of The Road Less Travel, life is difficult. And that's in this world, we will have tribulation. And so to be with people who are there and, and also when, you know, following Jesus is not easy to do. And so it's humbling to be in that space. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm excited. Well, with a considerable dose of warmth and humor, Dr. Kurt Thompson, he weaves together an understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian view of what it means to be human, to educate and encourage others as they seek to fulfill their intrinsic desire to feel known, valued, and connected. Kurt's unique insights about how the brain affects and processes relationships help people discover a fresh perspective and practical applications to foster healthy and vibrant lives, allowing them to get unstuck and move toward the next beautiful thing they're being called to make. Well, I recently became familiar with Dr. Thompson's work when my church invited me to attend a conference on shame. 
held in Omaha this past April. And in preparation, I read his book, Soul Shame, which honestly, I feel should be assigned reading for anyone in ministry or actually anyone who engages with other human beings. So for anyone, I'm going to I'm going to hold it up for those who see the video. And Dr. Thompson, your insights and your applications. First of all, I, I loved your focus on hope and beauty. That was so inspiring, both as someone who is on my own healing journey and then who walks beside others. And Really, it was so transformational. And I was really struck. What blew my mind, honestly, was just the the blend, the beautiful blend of your understanding of science, your love of scripture, your personal vulnerability, your understanding and compassion for those who've experienced trauma, and your clear, obvious reliance on the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's a combination we don't often see all of those things brought together. And I feel it's not just a life-changing combination, but a culture-changing combination. And so I'm super excited for this conversation. Mm. And I, I found your discussion on shame. So it's reach. I found it intriguing. And I wondered if maybe some of our listeners might misunderstand what shame is. And I wondered if you could kind of break that down for us a bit. Well, I think it's one thing I tell people is that I, I don't necessarily define it as much as I describe it. I describe like, well, how do we know that shame's happening? Why do we? So, so there's some things that we can, that we can know about it. First of all, I think it's important to know that shame is actually a thing that before anything else, it is a neurophysiologic event. It is a thing that first emerges in our bodies. I feel it in my chest, in my face. I act it out. I tend to turn away from people. I don't want to look at people in the eyes. I tend to literally in my mind, as far as my thoughts are concerned, my thoughts can become jumbled. And any of our listeners, if, if you've ever been in the middle of you know, you've, you've had a moment of humiliation. Uh, we all know how fun that feels. We all know that this is really that, like we, we want to run out of the room. But we also find it to be difficult to think clearly. We find it to be difficult to be creative. We find it difficult to have energy. We just want to turn away. So it is first and foremost a neurophysiological thing, which is important because sometimes when we think about shame, we think, oh, it's a function of like my thinking brain or my mind or just my emotion. And somehow I should be able to do something with that. When it is important to know that, well, the first thing we have to be aware of is like, well, what is your body doing in response to it? That's that's one thing. Second thing in terms of its function is that it starts to emerge in human beings very early in our developmental life. 15, months, 15 to 18 months of age is the time frame where the first kind of elements of what we experience as shame start to emerge in us. What this means is that we've been practicing it for a long time. Another thing that we know is that it creates in us a not just an emotional and cognitive, but like a physical way of hiding. I want to turn away from you, I but I also turn away from parts of myself. I don't want to think about that part of me that feels this way. So I kind of exile it. I want to get rid of it. I'm like, who who wants to say, hey, can I? Yeah, I'm at dinner. Time. I want to talk about this embarrassing moment that I had today. I can't wait to share this with you. No, nobody wants to do that. I want to get rid of these things. It's also... One of the features is that it, the cognitive element of it, what I, the, the, you know, the words that come to my mind tend to have a fairly condemning quality to them. I can be extraordinarily self-critical. I should have known this. I shouldn't have done that. Why you stupid idiot? Like all, like we all know, like the contempt that we share with ourselves. We also know that most of the shame that we experience, and this is something that people will sometimes find to be like kind of new information. I mean, our listeners might be quickly able to identify events in their lives, whether it's been a, a big single event or whether it's been 
like, you know, I know I lived in my house where my mother like always was just like critical of me or my dad always was rolling his eyes at, you know, just like, so it's just a continual parade of micro moments. And so we might be able to identify things that have happened to us from outsider skin that have come at us to create this. What we're often unaware of is that most of the shame that we experience is self-inflicted. I have had things that have happened, but then in the privacy of my own, my own mind, I take up the mantle of the conversation in which I say, if I had only done this, if I had only done that, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. And it becomes so well-practiced that eventually it leaves the arena of my cognitive mind's activity, the words, the thoughts, the sentences, and then it just becomes an automatic felt sense that I have now kind of incorporated into my body that leads then to all kinds of other behavior that tends to reinforce the shame and the condemnation. And then it's kind of sitting on the hard deck of all that all this sits on top of is the is the felt kind of like existential angst in which I'm really uh, what, I, what I'm really saying is that like the ultimate sense of this is that I am some version of I'm unwantable, I'm unlovable, which of course is the very, you know, that's the essence of the of, of the drama that unfolds in the third chapter of Genesis. When the snake is having the conversation with the woman, and even though he tells her things about God, God knows that if you eat of the tree that you will, you will not, you know, become like him and he doesn't want that. Even though he's telling her things explicitly and consciously about God, he leaves it then up to her to actually draw conclusions about herself. I'm not lovable. I'm not enough. I'm not okay. And the only reason I'm going to be okay, the only way I'll be is if I take the fruit. In other words, the fruit wasn't just an extension of her pride. It was a defense against the violence that had been perpetrated against her and the shame that the snake was already wielding, basically saying, you're not who you think you are. Which, interestingly enough, you leap forward to the fourth chapter of Matthew and the fourth chapter of Luke, the first chapter of Mark, the first chapter of John, and you have an encounter with another accuser who comes to find Jesus and says, essentially, if you are the son of God, which in essence, he's saying, you're not who you think you are. And this, of course, is the conversation that we pick up and then we inflict it upon ourselves. And so we can imagine, imagine walking around how many times a day, the dozens, if not hundreds of times a day that we are kind of shaming ourselves, often non-consciously, quite automatically. And so we have this huge like we, ha we, we have an ocean of collected shame that we walk around with, so much of which is self-inflicted, certainly connected to things that very much clear traumatic events that had happened to us, but that we end up collaborating with without even knowing it often. And so we find that the, you know, one of the, one of the big take-home events, both neurophysiologically as well as cognitively, is that I find myself being separated and isolated from others. And we know from the opening, from the second page of the Bible, that God is, God's the one who said, it's not good for this person to be alone, for the man to be alone. It's not good. We're not okay on our own in an isolated fashion. And healing is ultimately going to be a function of my shame being brought into the light in the presence of someone else who can give my brain a very different experience than the one that I've had so far. That kind of leads to one of your, one of the things you said at the conference. So you said, quote, we don't know the areas in which we long to be seen, 
until we don't have it. And then you also said the brain can't tell us what we don't feel, only what we feel. And so I, what would you say to those who are like, hey, yeah, I just don't think I need that. Like I, I, I don't need to be seen in that area or I'm not longing for that. Well, I, you know, I, I think it wouldn't be a single simple thing to say to them. I would be curious. I would be curious and ask, well, what do you long for? What do you want? These are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John. What do you want? What are you really looking for? And even then, I mean, that was a model. We read, right, the disciples of John the Baptist heard him say to them, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they turned and followed after Jesus. And Jesus, seeing them coming, turned and said to them, what do you want? What do you want? And, you know, we have all kinds of ways of answering this question. And what are the words that come out of their mouths? They say, oh, where are you staying? Now, I got to tell you, Jennifer, if I got a crack at having a conversation with the Messiah and he says, Kurt, what do you want? And I say, dude, I want to know, like, where's your crib? Like, where are you living? Like, no, I don't like maybe this is the proper way for people to like approach a rabbi. Maybe that's all kind of part of the but he meets them where they are. And he doesn't say like, dude, like, that's not what you want. Come on, give me a serious. No, he said, oh, come and see. I'll take you there. But I think to the person who would say, no, I don't think I need that. I wouldn't first want to debate that. Them. I would want to be curious about what they do want. I want to be curious with them about how aware are they of what they long for about anything. And at the end of the day, if we long for joy, if, if, if beauty and goodness is something that we long for in its form, fullness, we eventually discover that, gosh, what I long for is not the Tesla. It's not the perfect marriage. It's not the perfect parents. It's it's not the perfect church because those things don't exist. What I'm longing for is Jesus. But I don't get to have Jesus on my terms. I only get to have him on his terms. And those are often terms that are hard for me because he's asking me, what do I want? And I'm like, uh, I'm too anxious to answer this question. In fact, or or maybe what I wanted has been so attached to trauma in the past that I, I like, no, that is a question that is just fully loaded with danger. I'm not, so I'm not going down that. I'm not, I'm not going down that path. And maybe for those disciples, maybe they too had had lots of disappointments along the way and they weren't really yet ready to tell Jesus exactly what they wanted because like, is this the guy that's going to give us what we really want? Am I really to like, am I ready to show him my hand? I've had lots of relationships with messiahs in the past. I thought I had one with John the Baptist and that dude himself is telling me he's not the one. And now I'm supposed to go like hang out with this itinerant preacher and somehow he's like, please. I mean, we all have stories of, of trauma and in our trauma like real trauma that is sustainable is trauma that takes place in the context of, you know, human relationships. That's one thing I really loved in both in the conference and in your book is you you don't talk about just like, well, I think when we think of trauma or things that have this long term effect on us, we think of these really big, horrific things. And I loved your emphasis. I don't think we always honestly. So as I was driving to the the conference, I called my daughter. And she's 25 now. And I said, I just got to, I got to apologize to you. When you were a young girl 
and we were doing homework. She had dyslexia and I didn't recognize it. And I said, I would get really frustrated because I was anxious. And I spoke shame into your life. Like I wanted her to know that is something she probably wasn't aware of. She probably internalized personally. That was her issue. And I wanted her to know you might have some time to heal from that. You should get this book. But I loved the empathy because I think there are a lot of people who downplay or discount those challenges that you're talking about with relationship, with trusting Jesus and, and with walking through their shame. I also love to quote, you said, the problem is not the story. The problem is I'm alone with it. I would love for you to just in the context of relationships and even I love your emphasis on Jesus pursuing us. And, and so maybe for those of who are listening, maybe that's the first place for them to start. You know, what does it mean to not be alone with our story? in relationship to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are, I'm, I'm sure, Jennifer, there are a lot of metaphors, uh, ones that others could imagine that are far more effective than this. But like, let, let me just let me just say this. Um, we have experiences of trauma and that trauma necessarily is is one of the ways that trauma traumatizes us is through the way it wields shame. And shame then gets tangled up in all kinds of, with all kinds of other emotional states. I become ashamed. It's tangled up with my sadness, with my longings, with legitimate desires, with my anger, all kinds of things. My shame gets tangled up with that. And so I am reticent to reveal any of this to anyone because the last time I revealed myself in some way, shape or form vulnerably to someone like I was traumatized. And I'm not stupid. So like, why would I, why would I do that again? The challenge is that like the, the brain functions in a certain way and it doesn't, it doesn't function in a healthy fashion. Like it doesn't have like 10 different options of functioning in a healthy way. It has a healthy way of functioning. You're not going to fly. You don't get to fly an air, a 737 just any way you want to. Like there are certain things you're going to have to do. And if you don't do those certain things, like that jet's not going to fly. Or like b- bad things are going to happen. And one of the things that we know about a healthy mind, about a flourishing mind, and this isn't, this is a part from the biblical narrative. This is just the data that we have about the way healthy minds work. It just so happens that like the biblical writers have been writing about it in their language, like for 4,000 years. A healthy mind actually, in order for it to flourish, requires the presence of other minds. It's the physics. It, it, it's not just, it's not a philosophical or a religious you know, or just a biblical idea, like this is the way the brain works, just like gravity works, just like weather patterns work, the tides, like you can't argue with the tide. You can't argue with the fact that for my brain, if my, if I, if I have my story that I tell about myself with all of my moments of shame, and I continue to contain that by myself in the privacy of my own mind, I don't share that. I am going to have to burn energy to contain that. And that is energy that, so I, that is energy that eventually is going to so be siphoned off that I'm not going to have energy to do other things that I want to do in life. So I tell people, look, if you had a five gallon bucket of water, uh, could you pick it up? Sure. That's not that big of a But if you've ever carried water, water is heavy. And if I said, good, I'm glad that you can pick up that bucket of water because like we have a four mile hike to take and you're carrying the water a hundred yards into the, a hundred yards into the hike, like you're done. The weight of the water has not changed at all, but I have a limited capacity of how long I can carry and contain these things by myself. 
And so it's not just the trauma itself that is the problem. It is that I carry it alone that becomes continually eroding to my soul. It's not good for the man to be alone. Like we continue to come back. This is Genesis 2.18. This is foundational to who we are as human beings. And so one of the reasons, for instance, why Trinitarian theology is such a big deal. Right? Notice in Luke's gospel, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know whether he doesn't he, he doesn't say, I forgive you all because you don't know what like he's asking for help. In John's gospel, in John 16, where he's saying to them, like, you will, you are all going to leave, but I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The fact that Jesus knew that the Father was with him means that when in Matthew's gospel, we read in 25, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We read that and we think Jesus was alone on the cross. And sermons are preached. Songs are written. The father turns his face away. You never read that in the scripture. And we have this sense that Jesus does like, no, because like Jesus only earlier in the garden to Peter said like, dude, put your sword away. Do you not know that if I need to, I've got 6,000 troops. I've got 6,000 angels of the host that are at my behest. He's not alone. And the reason he does what he does is because he's not by himself. The reason that he can withstand the trauma is not because Jesus is so just simply personally heroic as an individual. And this then gets back to this sense that like it's really difficult for us. It's, it's hard for us to know healing. This isn't just like some, like my idea. This is what the body tells us about what we need. Now, granted, because these traumas have taken place in, inter- in intimate relationships, now, that whole notion of healing taking place in the context of the community can just scare the living daylights out of us, to which I would say, no kidding. Yeah, it's a frightening thing. It's a terrifying thing. And it can't be forced, and we can't make ourselves do it before we're ready to do it. But my longing for our listeners, I, what I want to say is like, oh my goodness, I so get how terrifying it is. And I was like, of course, and, 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 and you're not terrified because you're, because you're weak. Or because you're stupid or because you're a coward. You're terrified because of things that have happened to you. It's like it's legit. Totally. And something else that evil is counting on is that that thing that has happened to me, I will then continue to tell myself, I'm not okay. I'm not safe. I'm not. I'm too. I, I, I don't know. I can't do this. In which basically I'm picking up evil's message and I now become its delivery boy or girl. And so it's important to recognize that my, my felt sense of who I am at any given moment is not just a description of the state that I'm in. It's a description of the state in which I have been formed. I'm in the process of being formed at all times. And so I'm either moving toward relationship or away from it at all times. That's just the reality of like the physics of the relational world. And so... We would say, I, I use this metaphor, uh, I, I don't know if I used this in our in the conference that we were, that we, but I, I use this metaphor a lot with patients, and that's if you're four years old and you have a near-drowning event in the pool, like you're not going back to the pool, and you are completely fine, stay away from the pool. And then, you know, you get into your 20s, you, you've never been back to a pool since then, because like it's terrifying. And, but now you have all these friends, and they want to have pool parties, and they want you at the party. They want you at the party. And you're like, no, I'm not going to the party. But, but like, 
we, Jennifer, we want you at the party. Okay, come to the party. No, I can't. I'm not coming to the party. And then I have to decide, am I going to live alone in my apartment or am I going to live with my friends? Now, here's the thing. If I were your friend, I would say, here, look, look, here's the deal. I want you to come to the pool party, but I don't want you to bring your, I don't want you to wear your swimsuit. I'm not going to wear my swimsuit. We're going to go to the party and we're just going to sit on the deck of the pool. That's all we're going to do. And I know that you're going to smell chlorine and hear the chop of the water and your heart rate's going to go up and you're going to be afraid. And I'm going to sit beside you and hold your hand and we're going to breathe together. And we're going to come back to this pool as many times as we need to until you can just sit by the side of the pool with me, not by yourself. I'm not sending you to the pool. I'm going to, I'm going to come, I'm going to be outside the pool. I'm going to meet you. We're going to go in and you're gonna, I want to do this until you are just really, really comfortable. Come to the pool. And then when you're comfortable, like I'm going to say, I said, next week, bring your swimsuit. You're like, no. And, and no, and, and all we're going to do is sit on the edge of the pool and just put our feet in. That's all we're going to do. And of course, your heart rate's going to go up and all things are going to happen. But we're going to keep doing this until you're going off the high dive. But mostly we're doing this, not because my, my, our goal is not to get you off the high dive. Our goal is for you to be with us. I want more of you. I want the parts of you that are afraid to be in the room. I want, I want, I want to meet them. I want them to be loved. And you're thinking, look, I have very little evidence that when people offer that to me, that that ever happens. And so thank you very much. I'll just stay in my apartment. And here's the, here's, here's the real challenge is that like, you can't stay in your apartment and have them as friends. You don't get to have it both ways. I can't learn to swim by like reading about it on the internet. And this is, this is where things are really difficult for people. I mean, Jesus encountered the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel in particular, he missed the look. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And the ruler missed the look and he left and Jesus didn't go after him. And so it, I, I just want to, I just want to acknowledge this. It is, it is, it is hard work. The hardest thing that we have to do as human beings is allowing ourselves to be loved because our, our traumas are real. Our history is real. And, um, you know, one of the things uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop because I've just been yapping. In no, I love it. Here. No, this I'll, is good. But uh, one of the things I've, I, one of the things I've told people is so, so people will sometimes say to me, well, Kurt, like, I, I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid to do this. Like, I totally get it. There are parts of me that are still afraid to do this. So being afraid. Like it's the single most commonly uttered command in all of scripture. Do not be afraid. And you think, well, why is that? Because, well, because we're afraid. Right. We're just so good at it. Like, well, and like, it's again, not because we're stupid or cowards or weak, like we have a pulse. So we're afraid. And so I say, if you have a computer, go online and take the risk of watching The Chosen and just observe, see what you feel. When you watch, Jonathan Rumi, the person who plays the character of Jesus, be curious about what your response is to this guy. Is this a guy that you would want to meet you outside the pool? Is this a guy you think you could trust? A little bit? I don't mean, is this a guy that every single part of you can trust? No, because we're all like the father at the end of Mark 9, brings his son with trouble, and he says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. You know, 5% of me believes the other 95% doesn't believe. I need you to help that part of me. So I got lots of parts of me that still have trouble, that are still afraid. And I like, I, I would think like if Jesus would be in the room, he was like, well, of course, I get it. Like, look, look what's happened to you. Like, I get it. That's okay. I just trust, trust me with the parts of me that you're willing to trust me with. We'll start with that. Start with the chosen. And then imagine, is there one person 
Is there one person in your life at all? Is there, is there any person? Or, I mean, I, granted, there, there may be listeners here who would say, I have no people in my life with whom I trust anything with, which I would guess probably technically wouldn't be true because if you're driving on the highway, you're trusting other people who are driving the other direction. Like, right? So for us to say we don't trust anybody would probably not be the most accurate way for us to say this. I might say there are certain people that I trust certain things with. And I would say, okay, is there a person with whom you would be willing to trust one thing with that might be a little challenging? Like you're just going to sit on the deck of the pool, right? You're not not jumping into the pool, just sitting on the deck of the pool. I'm going to trust with that much. See what happens. That's beautiful. I, if you could, would that be your confessional communities, or would that kind of be a step up? A step up. Uh, I mean, I mean, there are. So, for instance, there are there are a lot of patients who eventually make their way into confessional communities but for whom the journey to that point has been a long one because they're doing a lot of work in individual psychotherapy because their trauma has been so difficult that for them to be able to, you know, for them to trust one person with all the different parts of their life that feel so shattered is like, is Herculean. Yeah. Let alone stepping into a room with seven other people. Yeah. Trying to respond to all that. But we do let people know it's not like, oh, if you're not in a confessional community, you're not really doing the work. Of course you are. But we do believe that when you are ready, when you are ready, that the work that we do in the confessional community gives you a uh, it, it expands and enlarges your opportunity to practice for heaven in the way that we've been talking about. I, one thing I wanted to, I was impressed both with your, your book and just modern. I am going to tell our listeners, I would encourage you to go to his podcast because he has so much brain science that to be known. Is that correct? To be known, being known, being known process, the being known podcast, yeah. being known podcast. He's got such great, great content where he really gives practical tools of how we can rewire our brain, which I think is just awesome. But, and, and I also wanted to address those who maybe tried therapy maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago when there wasn't as much knowledge of, as to trauma and and some things were done that were actually hurtful and harmful, I would encourage you to try, pray, pray prayerfully, try again. And and like I said, follow Dr. Kurt Thompson, read his, his book so that you are alert maybe when you're stepping into those spaces of what does good therapy look like? And, and what would you say for those who say, you know, I I tried it and they just had me, I know in the past they thought if you keep talking about your trauma over and over that it was helpful and that, and we found out that's not so helpful. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Well, right. I mean, again, talking about something and by that meaning just kind of reliving the same event over and over again, if that's all we're doing, what we're really doing is just reinforcing and strengthening the traumatic experience that one has had in the past. What we want people to do now is that we want them to name their trauma in order for them then to actually begin to tell the story differently and to have a different neurophysiologic experience in response to the trauma. And when you say, well, tell your story differently, what do you mean tell the story differently? Like, you can't go back in history and change the story. To which we would say, we're not talking about changing events. We're not talking about changing history. What we are talking about is changing the way your mind responds to the history that you've experienced. So, for instance, 
if I've had a traumatic relational event or set of event, like I said earlier, there are the events that have happened, but then there is my response to the events, the way that I think about it, the story that I tell about it, the story that I tell about my future in response to that. There's a whole, there's a whole novel that I write in response to the events that were traumatic. And the novel that I'm writing actually picks up where that trauma left off and continues the trauma without me even knowing. I mean, that's not what I'm trying to do. What we are working to do now with psychotherapy work, with counseling work, with some of the embodied interventions that we apply is that we are actually inviting you to reimagine your response to the trauma. One of the things that trauma does is that it shatters our felt sense of having any agency about a lot of things, including those events that happen to us. There's nothing I can do about it. And when we say that, we think the it is the thing that happened back in history. There's nothing I can do to go back and change it. That's true. But what we're often not aware of is the role that we are now playing in the ongoing novel that we're writing that is our response to the trauma. And that is something that we can change. Because as it turns out, that is the single most powerful way in which we continue to have our lives be disrupted. We become our own worst enemies without even being aware of it. And this, of course, I mean, this is taken right off the third page of the Bible. The snake has a conversation with the woman. And notice, once the snake has a conversation with the woman, the snake is not part of the scene ever again until God pronounces a curse upon it. But the snake is more than happy to give, to, to wound the woman and then step back into the shadows. Evil is not looking for notoriety. Evil is more than happy to wound us and then let us do the rest of its dirty work. And because we're not aware that that's what we are doing, we instead end up turning and blaming those who are around us as being the responsible parties for how it is that I am where I am. Eve blamed God. Adam blamed Eve. Then Eve blamed the serpent. Like, this is what we do. And so what psychotherapy is intended to do is to help us actually tell our stories differently than the way we've been telling them in the wake of the trauma. And what we've been discovering in the last quarter century in terms of how the brain works, in terms of attachment processes, also including some of the interventions that we can provide, really helps us do that in ways that are just really, I think, much more effective than they would have been 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. Even 20, well, even 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, and, and I love your emphasis too on just on how we re, we rewire our brain as we kind of move towards that. And I want to end with this because our community members, this was really important for them to hear the answer to. They wanted to know how, so you, you talk a lot about how God relentlessly pursues us. So how does our time with him, like let's say whether it's listening to worship music, whether it's, you know, you mentioned watching The Chosen for those who are maybe just kind of taking first steps or for maybe those who are further along and, and are practicing contemplative prayer. Does that have any effect on rewiring our brains like away from shame and towards connection? Sure. Great question. You know, one thing I will, uh, we, we mentioned this a little bit in our kind of pre-conversation for our recording. And one thing I, I want to invite our listeners to consider is that uh, it's easy for us to believe that I, I am the one, I, I am the primary force that is shaping my life. The decisions that I make, uh, the things that I think, the things I pay attention to, the practices of my life, all those kinds of things. And it's easy for us to rather naively be unaware that we as human beings are continually being formed by forces in the world 
that are far smarter and far more powerful than any of us are as individuals. That's just the way it is. Again, this is like physics. Like I'd, you know, I'm a, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I'd like to live until I'm 300 years old, but like the rules, you know, the kind of like law of averages suggests that like, I'm not going to live to be 300 years of age, no matter how much I might want to do that. Like things are going to happen to me that I can't control. I mean, no wonder we're so obsessed with AI and living forever and so forth and so on, because like we're living with the reality of certain things about the created world that we can't, that I'm not the master of. In the same way that I'm not the master of the tides. I'm not the master of weather patterns. Nope. I don't ever think about being the master of those things. But we've lived in a culture for the last 500 years in particular that has gradually persuaded us that we as individuals are the masters of our death. We decide what is true for us. We decide what is real for us. We decide who we are, so forth and so on. Now, it is true that we have agency in that process. We have agency. We are, we are players in that, but we are not the most powerful force in that process. We are being formed. And one of the ways that we are formed by 500 years of modernity and the enlightenment and rationalism and individualism and expressive individualism and so forth is this sense that I am alone. And therefore, I am ultimately fully responsible for my life. Which is heavy. It, 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 is, it is immeasurably heavy. It is immeasurably heavy. And to that, I, I, I want to say part of how it is that this feels so difficult to do the work that we're talking about doing is because evil wields that force, the principalities and powers. St. Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. It wields that force to form us into people who believe that I'm alone and therefore it's my responsibility. In the same way that the serpent was forming the woman into believing that she was unwantable, she wasn't loved. And this is something with which it's important for us to contend because if I feel like I have to now go do this by myself, I'm actually taking on a task that I that is impossible for me to take on, but that I was never intended to take on. Any of us were only ever intended to love and be loved in the world. And that for me to create beauty and goodness, for me to experience joy, for me to take delight in anything that I'm doing, whether it's my friendships or my or my work or my leisure or my or my marriage or my what what or my singleness, right? It, it, I do all of this in the context of a body of people. I have to admit, Jennifer, I don't remember what the question was. No, that was perfect. And it, you answered it. So okay. yeah, I'll just, and so I'm going to close with mentioning this again. Okay. Your book. So for those who haven't read his book yet, The Soul of Shame, it, like I said, it is phenomenal. And I'll, I'll read a little bit from the back, whether we realize it or not, shame affects every aspect of our personal lives and vocational endeavors. It seeks to destroy our identity in Christ, replacing it with a damaged version of ourselves that results in unhealed pain and brokenness. And he he has so much brain science in this. It's very, it's very helpful for, I think, anybody personally, because like you mentioned in the book and then in the conference, everybody suffers from shame to some degree. So I think anybody who reads it will find it helpful for them personally. But also, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we're called to create culture and to change culture and, and or to use Dr. Kurt's phrasing to create beauty and order out of the chaos. And so I would highly recommend this book. And actually, I'm going to read your other books as well, because now I am obsessed with your content. <laughs> so and your podcast, again, I would recommend some just some things that were very helpful to me 
listening to your podcast, you gave some really simple tips. Like, I don't remember which podcast this was, which episode, but being outside and getting exercise and slowing down when you eat, like all of these things that can help us rewire our brains. Those are very practical and, and very easy. Even if we're terrified to meet with people, we can take some of those, those healthy steps. And like you said, invite one person in. We, I, I do want to mention Holy Love Ministries. We do have a faith over fear private support group. So where we actively work on creating safe places, we'll put that in the show links. I'll also put the link for his confessional communities, which if those of you want to kind of explore that and find out more about him, I thank you so much, Dr. Thompson, for uh, for this conversation. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. To our listeners, I want to thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and then you won't miss a single episode. And we would love it if you would rate it. That encourages our team and it helps others to find it as well. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set free. Faith Over Fear is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. The love of God is immeasurable. It's unchanging. It's indescribable. Because God loves you so much, you can sleep through the night in peace. With Abide Bible Sleep Meditation, you can fall asleep fast with relaxing sleep stories based on scripture. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Bible Sleep Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.